I know you do. Well, it's such an honor. It is. Oh. It is. Especially this one. So while Deanna and Blake come up, let me just give you a little bit of insight. Uh, I think we were around when we saw this romance blossom. Yes. I think, uh, do I get the credit or no? No. 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 <laughs> um, little baby, Thea Nova Groniger, just adorable. This might be the first time ever a baby slept through a baptism. I think it's going to happen. Shh, keep it quiet. Before we do that, let me explain a little bit about what we're doing. There's a lot of misunderstanding about what a christening or an infant baptism is. This is not us saving baby Thea. That's something only Jesus will do, and he will do it personally on his timetable when he calls her, and he saves her and transforms her heart and life. This is actually more of a commitment that the family, that the, that the, uh, the mom and the dad and the husband and wife are making together along with the church for this reason. <clears throat> they are committing along with us to teach baby Thea the ways of Jesus as she grows. And they also are doing this so that she receives all the earthly benefits of being a part of God's family, of God's church. And that's what this represents. It's actually a commitment that the parents are making and the church is making together. So that is what we were doing. So before I do this, I need to ask Blake and Deanna. I love you guys so much. I love you so much. Um, do you commit to raise your beautiful daughter, Thea, in the way that Jesus has taught? Yes. Church, do you commit, <clears throat> along with Blake and Deanna, to raise this child in that way and also provide all the earthly benefits of love and accountability and affection that the earthly church provides God's people? Then I'm going to baptize. Oh, she woke up. (laughs) Bring her over here just a little bit closer. And it's nice and warm. I baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we just ask that you would be with this precious family, guide and protect them, I pray according to your will, you'd bring the spirit of God into Thea's life at an early age, that you would save her and transform her. Lord, we're so thankful for what you're doing in their life, and we're so thankful you've made them a part of our church family. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love you. And let me give you this. And by the way, I want you to know something. Today on our Facebook line or actually on Chaz's line or something, there was a like this day five years ago or yeah, something. We had a picture all together right outside the, the Church of the Palms and everything. Mm-hmm. That was really cool. Were you guys dating yet at the time? We were yeah. dating. We weren't married yet. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. Congratulations. <laughs> a little gift from us. Love you both. <clears throat> That's good stuff. I could almost close in prayer right now. But don't worry, I won't, because I have week 58 to get through here with you. Uh, We're continuing with our series on the Gospel of Mark. And um, this is week number 58. I've titled this message, The Gospel of Moses. For those of you that haven't been with us, what we do at Grace Life is we just go straight through books of the Bible. We don't do any topical sermon series, or if we do, it's very rare. Most of what we do is chapter by chapter, verse by verse, book by book. And we've been going through for over a year now the Gospel of Mark, and it's possible, I'm not sure, and I didn't plan this, or I could actually say I did plan it, we might actually have the Easter portion of this kind of crescendo right around Easter. It might be pretty cool 
Maybe I can make it happen. I don't know. I don't know. But this week is a very important message in this series on the Gospel of Mark called the Gospel of Moses. So have you ever read a passage in Scripture and been intimidated by what it says, or is it just me? Any of you? Like for many, today's passage is just like that. It's a problem passage in many respects. It's where Jesus declares what the two greatest commands are. The first one is to love God, but not just love him. He just goes ahead and makes sure you understand just how much. He says, love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and then all your strength. Okay, that's pretty intimidating, right? And then the number two is to love your neighbor as yourself. And it may sound simpler, but actually it's not. And we'll get into that later. But is it just me, or does it seem that those two promises, or those two commands that we're supposed to fulfill, seem sort of actually humanly impossible? I mean, I know you all, we all want to do these things to a certain degree, love God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength, and be able to love our neighbor as ourself. We want to do those things, but to that degree? I mean, probably... It's not going to happen very often, especially on US 41. Doesn't it feel like when you read that standard, doesn't it feel like we are very far away from fulfilling those commands? I mean, we try, but then we fail. So my computer just turned off, so I'm just going to go here just in case this battery went bad. All right. So... um, can you give me a little bit more light until this comes up? <laughs> it's just a little bit, uh, little bit dark. So um, I'm going to start by reading the passage while this is re-going. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing he answered them well, the scribe asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the second. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all our heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Lucky for us, Jesus provides a way for us to close this gap between how we're doing in the most important commandments and what it looks like to fulfill them. And lucky for us, all the answers are in what I call the gospel of Moses. So what we do with each passage, we look at the three applications. The first one is the history. What about man? What does he do? And why and how does he do it? I want to start off with this historical section. I'm calling it round three with religion. If you guys remember, earlier on the same day, he's already dispatched the feeble attempts of the Pharisees to trap Jesus. And then the Sadducees tried to come and trap him about a question about taxes. And now there's a third group that's coming. But before that happens, these religious elites have to regroup. They've been attempting to discredit Jesus, and they have been left humiliated. 
In fact, all they really did in trying to discredit Jesus during this time in the temple, this day that we call Confrontation Wednesday, is they've just elevated Jesus even further. And Matthew tells us after these first two debacles between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they went into this private strategy session away to discuss what do we do next. Did you know this actual, this private strategy session that Matthew describes as a prophecy fulfilled in Psalms chapter 2, verse 2? I'll just read it. It says, the rulers take counsel against the Lord and his anointed. And Acts 4, as a matter of fact, as the disciples, after they were released from prison and they were in prayer, praying for boldness, they recalled the events that happened on this confrontation Wednesday, and they were given insight by the Spirit of God as to what actually happened that day, how it was actually a fulfillment of prophecy, and they quoted Psalm chapter 2 in their prayer in Acts chapter 4, uh, verse 26, second half to 27. Here's what they said. And the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And they recognized that's what happened, was they gathered together. It was, a, it was a fulfillment of prophecy. At that point in Acts, a little over a month later, after Jesus' resurrection, they have full knowledge of who Jesus is and what lies ahead for them. So that's the first thing that's happened. Now I want to talk about how the, who these scribes are, this third group. First, as the Pharisees tried to trap, trap Jesus on taxes and the Sadducees with this little silly riddle about the resurrection and the, and the woman who went through seven brothers, his husbands, remember that? The black widow. This is the third wave of attacks from the Sanhedrin, this subset of this group called the scribes. And the scribes really had two functions, if you will. First of all, they carefully wrote copies of the scriptures, of the law. The other thing they did was they, because they knew the law so well, they were in fact kind of like lawyers. They would craft all the legal documents necessary in Jewish culture. They were bureaucrats. They were experts in the law, mostly living in and around Jerusalem. The scribes knew every detail of the law. And they, grew, they drew up all the contracts. They were the lawyers. They were mostly loyal to the Sadducees, who if you remember from last week, that's the group that ran the priesthood. The scribes were a key tool for enforcing the law on the people. Of course, the law that the Sadducees weren't keeping themselves, but they wanted everyone else to keep it. Now, these scribes also had very strong connections with the rival group, the Pharisees. They kind of functioned as legal clerks of the Sanhedrin. And before the rabbinical period, that's when the rabbis would start traveling around and speaking, and that's what's happening during Jesus' time. Before this rabbinical period in Jewish history, the scribes were considered the utmost authority in teaching the law of Moses. They were like, if you will, professors when it came to teaching the law. They were an immensely powerful group politically and legally. They had lots of influence, lots of money. They had lots of power in the Sanhedrin, and because of that, a lot of power in Israel. So I want you to see what happens here about ranking the laws, because it's important. Because remember, he says, Jesus, what are the most important commandments? This, this idea of ranking the laws is not some random thought. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, you know, they didn't agree on much, but they did agree on the authority of the books of Moses. In fact, every Jew in the temple that day, and there were thousands had respect for the law of Moses, and they had great nostalgia and great passion and great love for Moses as a patriarch. After Abraham, Moses is the most important figure in Israeli 
history, in Jewish history, the most important patriarch of all for many reasons. Remember, he stood up to Pharaoh, led them out of Egypt. He demonstrated a special connection with Jehovah on many occasions, like last week when Jesus referenced one of them, the burning bush. Remember, he was given the law, the Ten Commandments, on tablets of stone and came down from the mountain. So Moses is a very important guy. And their hope is that somehow they can trap Jesus into demeaning Moses in the same way he has demeaned them in the temple. And their thought is they want Jesus to try to elevate himself to be more important than Moses, and then the people will turn on him. And when that happens, they can convince Rome to act and execute Jesus as a rebel. That's their goal, to make Jesus look like a threat to the peace, and then Rome will get involved. So this scribe in this story was not part of the, the one speaking and debating with Jesus. He actually was observing the debate. He has a spiritual breakthrough, this scribe, that he did not come to Jesus looking for. Remember, he came with a big group looking to trap Jesus into saying something bad about Moses. And this scribe is actually doing something really interesting. He is figuring this out in real time as he watches Jesus. He's observing the debate that Jesus is having with all his fellow scribes, and Jesus is killing it. He's figuring it out, and then this question he asks Jesus isn't some random thought, and it's not a trap. This is a sincere question that this scribe, who is clearly, in my opinion, being called, being saved as, we, as he's going through this, there was a constant evolving system among the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes to determine what were the most crucial laws of God. There were some light laws, like laws that are important, but they're kind of like not as important like dietary laws. If you broke one of those, yeah, it's bad, but you know, you're not going to get put in prison for it. But then there were heavy laws regarding spiritual things like how to do sacrifices, how to come to the temple, how to prepare your sacrifice. So there's two types of kind of things here. And so the scribe is hearing Jesus debate, and we don't know exactly what all the debate was about, but apparently it was pretty good. And the scribe is hearing this, and he speaks up. Excuse me, rabbi? He calls him rabbi, which is fascinating. He calls him rabbi in the temple. Now, I'm not going to get into all of that today, but I've taught you in the past that when you came to the temple and you declared who your rabbi was, that was a very important, endearing position you were giving someone. And he says, which is the greatest commandment? So let's look at the spiritual section. What about God? What does he do and why and how does he do it? I want to talk about how Jesus is preaching the gospel of Moses and he's honoring Moses. See, the scribes had hoped Jesus would demean Moses, but instead Jesus honors him and affirms Moses and the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Jesus not only gives the greatest commandment, but he also gives a second one which is impossible to fulfill if you don't fulfill the first one. The first commandment, he says, well, that's a good question, scribe. First one is you got to love God. And he quotes from Moses for this answer with instructions of loving your God and your neighbor. And it comes from, he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 6. And he uses this word love. It's, it's the, the Greek word agapao, which means to love from intellect. Love with loyalty and love with sacrifice. It's different from a love that is, that is motivated by 
uh, emotion. It's different from love that is motivated by lust. This is a love that is an intellectual, thought-provoking, sacrificial kind of love. It's greater than external affection or attraction. And he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Hear, O Israel, this is what's in one of the books of Moses in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. See, what Jesus is explaining to this scribe, and at this point, while everybody else is listening, he's really talking to one man. He's describing not a ritualistic, external, religious relationship. He's describing a deeply internal, heart-based, personal one. I command you today, this command shall be on your heart, not in your hands, not in your feet, not in your temple, but on your heart. See, Israel was surrounded by many nations who worship multiple gods, and they're given a directive. There is one God, and you will love him with your heart, not with your rituals. And then he gives another command to love others. And this one he quotes Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So you understand the type of people he's describing in Leviticus 19.18. They're not like people you know really well. These are people that got you angry. (laughs) In quoting this passage, though, he does something brilliant, Jesus does. Remember, they wanted Jesus to demean Moses. Actually, what Jesus does is he quotes... These were some of Moses' last words on earth before he died. Every Jew would remember them. And he quotes them. It's another way that he honors Moses and he affirms the law of Moses while he's preaching the gospel. So they wanted him to dismiss Moses, but he purposefully, in a very emotional, nostalgically meaningful way, honors Moses. But this command to love ourselves less and love others more is a huge indictment on the whole Sanhedrin, is it not? Everyone knows it, so when he's saying this, everybody realizes he's talking to people who don't love others as themselves. And what we see is this enlightened scribe. And I put a question mark on my notes because... I can't tell you for sure he became a believer that day, but I think the evidence is pretty overwhelming, and you'll see why. This is the most unlikely of outcomes, isn't it? After a long day of these religious elites trying to trap Jesus and make him look bad and get the people to turn on him. This is our spiritual section, right? And what do we talk about in the spiritual text section? What about God, and what does he do? I think we see evidence of God calling this scribe. Jesus teaches the gospel from the Pentateuch. Remember I told you last week there is a movement among Christians today who say, we don't need to teach the Old Testament anymore. It's not relevant. And they are completely wrong. As a matter of fact, the gospel is all through the book of Deuteronomy. It's one of the greatest gospel books in Scripture, believe it or not. He teaches from the Pentateuch our connection to God and to each other isn't religious. It's deeply personal. 
And the scribe, the word teacher is what he uses. It's an endearing rabbinical address. He says, you're right, rabbi. Both are more important than all the sacrifices. The scribe is publicly admitting that what Jesus is teaching is more important than all the temple laws that he and his cohorts have adored. You're right, Jesus, there is one God. And loving him and your neighbor is more important than all the sacrifices we force the people to perform. And watch this. Jesus tells him, you are, look at Jesus' response. He says, you are so close to the kingdom of heaven. What a stunning interaction this is, right? I mean, wow. Look at what's happening here. This isn't a random response. Jesus doesn't say, you know what, you're very close. Seems like Jesus is just kind of making it a random response here. No, it is not a random response. It is brilliant, it is rich, and it is deeper than you can ever imagine. And stay tuned in the personal section for why. So this interaction is so different than any other Jesus has had with the religious elites in the Sanhedrin, right? It's completely different. What you see here is this scribe has publicly embraced the gospel of Moses, as taught by Jesus in the temple. For the scribe to hear Jesus say, you're not that far from the kingdom, is remarkable, right? Since his focus, his whole life had been the law. And the scribe sees for the first time in his life, wow, it's not about the law, but love. Jesus connected with his heart and with his mind, did he not? By the way, ironically, the very things Jesus says we're supposed to love God with. It appears that Jesus connected with this scribe in such a way that it transformed how he saw his whole life. So let's go to the personal section, the third section. What about you? What about me? What are we supposed to do and why and how do we do it? I ask a question. How close are you? So this was my Sunday sermon preview this week on Twitter and on Facebook, and this is what I wrote. I got a bunch of comments. Some of them were angry with me, and I had to hide them, you know? But here's what it is. Jesus says, loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength is the greatest commandment. Is that comforting or intimidating? So I'm just going to say what we're all thinking if we're honest, right? We may not say it publicly. We might not even say it on social media, but inside your heart, I know this is what you're thinking. Well, okay, I, at least what I'm thinking. This love God with all your strength thing is very intimidating. I mean, there is no way. Maybe you succeed in fleeting moments, like when you're in desperation and you desperately need God and you're reaching out and crying out and calling out and you're doing everything you can to get connected to Him because you need Him. It's a time of, of great desperation. Maybe it's in a crisis of some type. Or perhaps maybe you've had those moments where you really felt like you were loving God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind and strength when you were on a mountaintop. Maybe it was some sort of emotional, spiritual experience in a worship service or when God did something great in your life. You were on a mountaintop and you could really feel, right? And by the way, this loving your neighbor as yourselves, it's not about loving your family or your friend or the neighbor next door to you that you're friendly with. It's about everyone else around us, even those we have a beef with. He says, don't take revenge on the sons of your neighbors but love your neighbor as yourself. And it's not a separate command, actually. 
It's a command that flows from our ability to fulfill the first one. It's all about love. So question, do you really love people you barely know as you love yourself? Let me answer for you. Not a chance. You don't brush their teeth in the morning. You don't dress them, but you do that for yourself. See, what Jesus describes, this love God to this degree and love your neighbor as yourself, this is not humanly possible. It can't be summoned from human religion. Human emotion, human experience cannot produce the opportunity for it. It cannot be summoned by human will or choice or effort. But I will tell you, as intimidating as keeping the law perfectly might be, if we're honest, loving God and our neighbors in this way is just as intimidating. So we might feel far away. But honestly, we're not that far. Imagine what the scribe felt when Jesus told him, you are not far from the kingdom. In that moment, everything the scribe held precious became second to Jesus. What happened to the scribe? He was brought near. What did Jesus mean? How was the scribe who was previously far from God brought near to the kingdom of heaven? Look in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 10 and 11. Jesus is actually quoting more scripture when he says you're not that far from heaven. He's quoting the gospel of Moses. Look at it says, When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, sound familiar? For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't Scripture amazing? Doesn't that just give you chills up and down your spine when you start looking at Scripture as a whole? And not try to segment it, but look at it in context? That's what Jesus meant. Isn't it brilliant? Isn't it beautiful? The transitional bridge between The law and love is Jesus himself. That's what he's saying. The scribe has heard the voice of God. He hears truth. He embraces it and confesses publicly that Jesus is his rabbi and he does it in the temple. Go research what that means. And how? How did this happen? How was the, ra- the scribe who was so far away, who hears this debate, and he asks this question, what's the greatest command? And Jesus tells him, and he responds, wow, rabbi, an endearing term, teacher, you are right. There is one God, and we are to love him and our neighbor. And what you've just said is far greater than all this garbage I've been focused on this whole time. And how? Because of belief, primarily from what we see in Ephesians, the gift of faith. Just as Abraham believed God, and and the scripture says that Abraham was counted as righteous because he believed God, the scribe is now counted as righteous 
as he is counted as fulfilling the greatest commandment. He says, he doesn't say, you're almost there, scribe, keep trying. That's not what Jesus says when he says you are close to the kingdom. What Jesus says is, Deuteronomy has been fulfilled in your life. Because of the gift of faith, this scribe is counted by Jesus as fulfilling the greatest commandment. And it's all right there, laid out beautifully in what many people think is one of the most boring books in the Bible, the book of Deuteronomy. This next point I want to talk about is this idea of being brought near. I know many of you want to be able to say with all your heart that you desire to fulfill perfectly these two great commands. I know that's your desire. I know that's what you want to do. Even though I know that you probably know that you're not where you need to be and rarely have you been, your passion is, man, if I could just snap my fingers today and love God with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength, and love my neighbor as myself, if Jesus says that's the greatest command, that's what I want to do, I'd love to start doing it right now. And why is it that you want to do that? It's because the love of Jesus, with which he first loved us, while we were not even lovable, that's why we have been brought near. Now watch this. You're going to love this. Most of you embrace this, this idea that Jesus has brought you near. What does it mean? Church, be encouraged. It means you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're just like the scribe. You can honestly say, I think most of you in here would... would would agree with this statement I'm about to read. You're right, teacher. There is one God, none other besides him. And loving him with all my heart and with all my understanding and with all my mind and with all my strength and loving my neighbor as myself is much more important than anything else I could ever pursue. It's more important than my job. It's more important than my reputation. It's more important than my family. It's more important than my religion. It's more important than my possessions. It's more important than my wealth. It's more important than anything I ever dreamed of as valuable and precious. See, through the gift of faith, you, O Christian, have begun to see that love is your most important command. Check out this verse. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's what Jesus was telling the scribe. You have been brought near. And he wasn't brought near because he was good at being a scribe. He was brought near because he was given the the gift of faith to believe that what Jesus says is true and that love that he demonstrates is the greatest command. Church, if this is you, you aren't far from the kingdom. Like the scribe, you have been brought near. And when you believe what Jesus says is true, you are Close. 
And I believe, and I've seen evidence of this, that it has happened to many of you. You're not that far. You've been brought near. Jesus, thank you so much that you demonstrate the love that you loved us while we were yet unlovable. And you became the transition from law to love.